Disney turnaround is just beginning. JPL announces massive layoffs, what just happened in sports streaming, and what industry is next, and the big trouble for New York Community Bank. Welcome back to the Weekly Money Clip. In a market with millions of podcasts, it is tough to stay on top of the essential business and tech stories beyond headlines. This week, we will be counting down five key moments from last week to give you context for the week ahead. As always, clips are under five minutes from voices you trust, adding context to headlines from the week behind to prepare you for the week ahead. This week, we welcome Tom Hayes, Kenny Polkari, Simpson Garfinkel, Scott Stannis, and Michael Lee to the show. So let's dive right in. At number five in our countdown, we begin with a turnaround from the House of Mouse. Tom Hayes joins us. He is the chairman and managing member of Great Hill Capital. Tom is also the founder of Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes podcast and a stock market and economy TV commentator. In this segment, he discusses the Disney bounce back. He highlights the similarities between Disney's predicament in 1984 and the current situation. Back then, Money managers like Richard Rainwater invested in Disney, leading to significant changes and increased profitability. Today, despite the pandemic and other challenges, Hayes believes that Disney's legacy content library will be monetized through streaming and the park will generate a great return on invested capital. He predicts that the stock will make great strides in the next three to five years, with potential for double returns for early investors. However, he also acknowledges that short-term outcomes are uncertain. Here's what Tom had to say. This is Tom Hayes for Center Clip talking about the Disney bounce back today. I'm founder of Great Hill Capital, a long short equity manager for family offices and ultra high net worth individuals and founder of the uh, top ranked podcast, Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. You can find on YouTube or wherever you get podcasts. As it relates to Disney, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Disney was going through a very similar situation in 1984. Their parks were tired. They had no way to monetize their legacy IP, their legacy content. And the stock had done nothing for about a decade since Walt Disney himself had passed away. It was lethargic. Some money managers were circling around the stock, a couple of activists. And Richard Rainwater, who managed money for the Bass family, along with the Bass family, came in with a $300 million investment. Part of it was stock, part of it was in kind, in order to fend off some of the activists in the stock. And they appointed Eisner, and basically they their biggest initiative, number one, they reinvested in the parks. Number two, they took a brand new technology to monetize their legacy uh, unparalleled content library, and that brand new technology was called the VHS tape, and that absolutely transformed their profitability over the next basically decade and a half. Profits grew fourfold. They were selling the same old stuff on a brand new medium, the VHS tape, and uh, the Bass family investment turned from 
$300 million to its peak of $5.8 billion by the late 90s, early 2000s. There's more to that story. But uh, the point is, we're at a very similar juncture. The stock had been down 60%. Activists were circling around the stock. Basically, the stock's gone nowhere for a number of years, in part due to the pandemic, in part due to some over leverage from deals. But, you know, you could have basically, when we were talking about this stock and entering the stock in the podcast and on public uh, TV interviews, you know, you could basically buy the stock for 2015 prices. And we knew, despite the short-term noise and headwinds about the content, et cetera, that the legacy content library was going to be remonetized with streaming and the park's return on invested capital was phenomenal. So basically the park's and experiences were worth $80, $90 a share, uh, $10 billion of EBITDA, and you got ESPN, the number one sports content business, uh, all the streaming and other assets effectively for free. So you, your downside was tremendously limited. Your upside was at least a double plus from our entry point. Now it's taken off today. We're starting to see the effect of that with uh, their guiding to generate $8 billion of free cash flow next year. And you couldn't give away the stock at 80 bucks. It's mind boggling to us. And uh, they're going to get their cash flow to above pre-pandemic levels. They're investing in the park, $60 billion over a decade. They've got the partnerships for these sports streaming now with some of the other uh, sports providers. They're going to bundle that up and package it. And they've got Value Act involved who transformed Spotify and New York Times digital pricing tiers. They're doing the same thing for Disney Plus and, and packaged products, which are going to be a phenomenal success. So we think that, uh, yes, this is a huge jump today after earnings. Unexpected for most, expected for us. Uh, we didn't know it was going to happen today, but we knew that this stock was going to be a double over time from our lower basis. And we think it's going to continue to push higher. And I think if, as you look out over the next three to five years, the stock can be at new highs. And uh, those of you who bought it down, you know, 60, 50% uh, are going to make doubles. And those of you even buying at these levels, I think are going to do exceptionally well if you take the long view. Can't tell you what it's going to do in two weeks or two months. This is just opinion, not advice. But uh, we think the turn is just beginning. Let's continue our weekly rundown with number four on our countdown of business segments. We join Kenny Polkari for a snapshot review. Polkari is the founder of Case Capital Advisors. Federal Reserve Chair Powell's comments on 60 Minutes have caused market volatility and a sell-off. Tech stocks and AI stocks are rising, but bond prices have tumbled with increased treasury yields. Oil and gold prices remain steady due to Middle East instability. Fed speakers this week are adding to uncertainty. Gold is being seen as a safe haven asset. Long-term investors may find opportunities in the weak market, while short-term traders may enjoy the volatility. Here's the full segment from Kenny. Hello and good morning. Today is Tuesday, February 6th, and I am Kenny Polkari for Center Clip. So here's your latest market update. Fed Chair's JJ's comments on 60 Minutes Sunday evening about a March rate cut sparked market volatility and a sell-off in the broader market as he confirmed that investors better not hold their breath hoping for a March cut. Tech stocks really think anything AI continued to climb higher despite the broader market adjustments. Treasury yields rose, sending bond prices plunging. The TLT and the TLH both lower by about 2% on the day. Two-year and 10-year yields are now up over 7% 
or 27 basis points in just two days. Oil and gold prices held steady, yet ongoing uncertainty in the Middle East keeps traders on the edge. Saudis need oil to trade at $90 a barrel to balance their budget. So oil at $74 a barrel is not helpful for them. Non-OPEC production is filling the void left by OPEC production cuts, and you can thank the United States for that. Many Fed speakers are scheduled this week, adding to market uncertainty. Yesterday, it was Kashkari and Goolsby. Today, it'll be Mester and Harkins. Uh, will they support each other or will they contradict each other? Because that's going to be what the market focuses on. If they suggest uh, that rate cuts, in fact, are still on the table and coming, expect the market to focus squarely on those comments. That's if they do. Now, there's no significant economic reports today or this week, but next week brings us some key data. Think CPI, PPI, building permits, and housing starts. Now, like I said, gold remains stable as investors sought the safe haven assets. On Monday, we tested support down at 20.30 an ounce, which I identified, but we bounced. In the end, remember, investors will flock to gold as the ultimate safe haven asset if the geopolitical environment continues to heat up. Fed speakers and the earnings reports are really going to be the focus today and the rest of this week because, like I said, there's not going to be any key economic data. European markets, which opened higher, continue to trade higher with mixed economic data. The S&P closed at 49.42 last night, down 16 points, reflecting market caution. Despite volatility, long-term investors may see opportunities in this potential market weakness. This morning, markets are struggling around the unchanged line as they search for direction. A test of the trend line at 47.34, which is, represents a 4% move lower from here, is certainly not out of the question at all. Not today, but it's not out of the question over the course of the next couple of trading sessions. That would be an event that would be welcomed by most long-term investors. Certainly the short-term traders uh, will like the volatility and some of them may get hurt if they're playing it from the long side, right? I, for one, am rooting to shake the branches a bit. I just want to see who falls out if that happened. In any event, it's the beginning of another day. Until tomorrow, take good care. Number three this week involves another significant round of layoffs, this time at JPL. Covering this story and the implications, we have Simpson Garfinkel. Simpson is a science journalist who has published hundreds of articles in newspapers and magazines and 17 books. His research interests broadly include data science ethics, digital forensics, personal information management, counterintelligence, and counterterrorism. Unfortunately, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, in California, is facing significant layoffs due to Congress failing to pass a budget for the fiscal year 2024. Over 500 personnel and 40 contract workers are losing their jobs, which accounts for about 8% of their workforce. JPL's research is crucial for advancements in technology and science, and their space telescopes inspire young students to pursue careers in the sciences. It is disheartening that despite both political parties expressing support for scientific advancements, they have failed to provide the necessary funding. Let's join Simpson for his full analysis. Hi, this is Simpson Garfinkel for Center Clip talking about technology on a very sad day. Yesterday, February 6th, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California announced that it was laying off more than 500 people 
plus 40 members of their contractor workforce because of the failure of Congress to pass a bad budget for fiscal year 2024. That's our current fiscal year. And in light of budget uncertainty and the likelihood that they will receive a budget cut when the budget finally passes, the JPL administrator had no choice but to lay off these people. This is really upsetting because JPL is one of the premier organizations in the United States that is dedicated to space exploration. It's also troubling because the future of this country rests in technology and science. And JPL not only is at the forefront of research, but the imagery that the telescopes bring back inspire generations of school children to pursue careers in the sciences. Right now, JPL has multiple science missions that are in development, as well as those that are currently in space, including things like the Euclid system that investigates uh, dark matter and dark energy, the Lunar Trailblazer mission, which hasn't gone up yet, but is uh, looking at the lunar water cycle for possible survival of people on the moon, the surface water and ocean topography, which is making a global survey of Earth's surface water. Many, many things that are in the works, in space, on the drawing board. And to have this kind of... Uh, significant cut, approximately 8% of their workforce, is just a travesty. When both political parties claim that they want to support science, but they do not put money where their mouth is, they don't support basic research, they don't support space. We need to act as a nation and really fund science and technology. We need to inspire the next generation to do things other than create TikTok videos. And there shouldn't be an argument. Space and technology and science is such a small part of the federal budget, and it has such an outsized impact. So this is Simpson Garfinkel for Center Clip on a sad day for science in the United States. Have a good day. Number two this week addresses the major sports streaming announcement between ESPN, Fox, and Warner. What led to this new offering, and could it signal other similar collaborations around the corner? Scott Stantis joins the Money Clip with his insights from working in both print and digital media. Scott is an internationally syndicated editorial cartoonist, senior fellow at the Alabama Policy Institute, and co-host of DMZ America podcast. In this segment, Stantis discusses the growing trend of cutting the cable and the rise of streaming services. He highlights the recent agreement between ESPN, Warner, and Fox to create a consolidated sports streaming service in response to the declining popularity of cable television. Scott also predicts a similar scenario in the newspaper industry, with former journalists establishing their own news sites that may eventually merge to provide a more comprehensive service. What might this future in print look like? Here's what Scott Stantis had to say. 
I love watching markets do what markets do best. I'm editorial cartoonist Scott Stantis coming to you this week for Money Clip through Center Clip. A lot of clips involved here. What am I talking about? Well, the news this week that ESPN, Warner, and Fox have agreed to create a consolidated sports streaming service. This is in direct response to cable television and the diminishment of cable television. Many people cutting the cable. My wife and I are among them. Two, three years ago, we cut the cable, mostly because we looked at what we were watching and more importantly, what we weren't watching. So we were 90% of what we were paying for, we never watched. And we also noticed that our interests and our viewing habits lean more towards streaming services. Well, this is what happens. Cable television got greedy and they charged more and more and more. And people lately have been cutting it more and more and more. And looking at streaming, the one thing I missed was live sports. Now, I was one of the ones, and I still have that. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's a cheesy, like it looks like a black square. It, it's, it's your antenna for your television. And it picks up the terrestrial signal. Unfortunately, uh, where I live in the Southeast, my favorite teams, which are Western teams, don't get a whole lot of coverage. So I'd have to stream through other means. Let's put it that way. So if the ESPN, Warner, Fox agreement, and the station and the streaming services they put together have a price point that makes sense, God bless them. I could not be happier. And this is what happens when something like cable gets fat, happy, complacent, not agile, and they just start to price people out of the market. Here's a prediction. Other mergers, subject to other boneheaded, badly run businesses. And by that, I obviously mean newspapers. I worked in newspapers for many, many years. You look at what's happened to the newspaper industry now, it really is very close to being dead. The size and the growing size of the news deserts in the United States is truly shocking because it's going to be the halcyon days if you're a corrupt local official, believe me. But what's happening in these markets too is that the former journalists, many of them former journalists, are creating their own news sites. And obviously bigger markets have more news sites. But my thought going forward in, in a few years in the future, very similar to ESPN, Warner, and Fox, is you're going to see these news sites start to merge and create a bigger, more comprehensive product for the consumers. There's a lot of people in this country who like to get their news. Unfortunately, some of them like to get news that just you know confirms their own way of thinking. But there's also a large market of people who just want to know what's going on. How did the city council do this? How did the local high school team do that? Which they're now separate sites dedicated to covering those type of things. You're going to see them now, I believe, be merged back together and probably into a construct that someone my age, which is, you know, old, will be able to recognize. Anyway, I'm Scott Stantis. I'll talk to you next time. Closing out our countdown at number one this week, we have Michael Lee, the founder, Michael Lee Strategy and Markets and Economics commentator. Lee discusses what is happening at New York Community Bank and potentially wider concerns for the banking sector. Lee says trouble is brewing in the New York Community Bank Corp, NYCB. The bank experienced a significant drop in stock value and faces challenges due to government regulations and legislation. 
Factors such as reduced occupancy rates, high costs, and COVID-19 regulations that have affected the bank's business model. Rumors suggest short sellers are targeting regional bank corporations to provoke a crisis. The situation presents hidden problems within the economy, and it remains to be seen if regional banks will collapse. What else did Lee have to say? Here are his insights. This is Michael Lee for CenterClip. Big trouble in Little China as it pertains to New York Community Bank Corp, NYCB as a stock ticker. They uh, made some headlines roughly a year ago when they took over Signature Bank. Signature Bank was closed by the regulator at the same time as Silicon Valley Bank and before First Republic. Okay, why did this happen? Well, uh, according to Barney Frank, who was on the board, it's because they were banking crypto, and they also were doing some VC loans. But New York Community Bank has historically been an extraordinarily solid bank. They also own Flagstar Bank. They have 395 branches in New York, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Florida, Arizona, but primarily a New York City bank. Uh, and they do a lot of office lending and rent-controlled buildings in the greater New York City area. This has historically been an extraordinarily safe business. This is a good bank. The problem is the government of New York City has absolutely destroyed their business. How so? Well, first, with their COVID insanity. The occupancy rates of offices in the tri-state area have collapsed. It's New York Community Bank and small and regional banks that write the loans on these small, medium, and somewhat large office buildings, whereas the J.P. Morgans, the money center banks, syndicate those loans out and don't hold a lot of that debt on their balance sheet. So these types of banks are vital to the infrastructure. And then the rent control buildings, the cost of everything has skyrocketed. So not only has the city of New York and the governments in Westchester and Nassau and the state of New York just driven so much of their population away with the taxes and the COVID regulations. The work from home is just devastating the office occupancy rates. On top of that, in the New York City region, not only with the crime, but all the regulation, the skyrocketing costs of everything has just destroyed the value being a landlord when you own a rent-controlled building because you can't raise your rents uh, along with the cost of everything else. So you're getting to the point where some of these landlords are just going to hand the keys back. Well, fast forward to now, the stock has collapsed. You know, stock has gone from 10 bucks to three bucks. And, you know, they're not worried this is going to start another contagion. So Silicon Valley Bank collapsed because the regulators allowed them to have three quarters of their business tied to one singular industry. That's technology. And so you had a run on the bank in that that you just said massive deposit flight. And when you live in a fractional reserve banking system, you need to have depositors to have a bank. So when the depositors walk out the door, so does the bank. That hasn't quite happened with New York Community Bank Corp yet. Maybe they're going to sell some assets, maybe they're not. But this is weighing on the entire regional banking sector. And I, you know, I don't know if it's true, but I'm hearing rumors that short sellers are shorting all the regional bank corps to cause a crisis so the Fed will cut rates earlier than they want to to handle this. And the Fed set up a temporary liquidity guarantee program because Janet Yellen decried that they were going to bail out all depositors. But look, this is just another mess 
of the Biden administration and the liberal nonsense you see in these places, and it's it's having real life and more real life consequences above and beyond the obvious things we see in front of it. So is there a uh, collapse, a regional bank collapse in front of us? We'll see. This is something to watch for. You can already see stress in the market because the 10-year treasury is around 4%. The 30-year mortgage is six and three quarters, an extra 100 basis points where it should be, which is slowing down everything. So look, there's a lot of problems underneath the surface of this spectacular economy, as we're told. Uh, and this regional banking crisis that we're seeing emerge is just one of them. I'm Michael Lee of Michael Lee Strategy for CenterClip. We'll have to hold it there. Please remember this episode presents the personal opinions of these individuals and should not be viewed as investment advice. Thank you to Tom Hayes, Kenny Polkari, Simpson Garfinkel, Scott Stantis, and Michael Lee for their work and more in real time. Please visit centerclip.com. One topic at a time, leaders on both sides, always under five minutes. That is elevating discourse. Again, centerclip.com for more throughout the week. We'll be back next week. This has been the Weekly Money Clip. Hi, my name is Joe Grogan. And I'm Eric Ulan for DCEKG. DCEKG is all about the how and why of Washington, D.C., what's going on, what's going on behind the headlines. We spend a lot of time talking about healthcare and economic policy, but frequently delve into trade policy and sometimes national security or whatever's happening on Capitol Hill. Between Joe and I, we have nearly five decades of Washington experience. We put that to work with our guests to explain to you what's going on in Washington. I always found myself calling Eric when I didn't understand what was happening and always found him to be really good at explaining to me some of the things that I wasn't seeing. And I hope our guests will get the same type of insights. I always found myself talking to Joe when I couldn't believe what I was seeing happening to understand exactly how the heck we got to where we were. Tune in to DCEKG anywhere podcasts or YouTubes are available. You won't regret it. 